the mortal realms have been despoiled, ravaged by the followers of the Chaos Gods. They stand on the brink of utter destruction. The fortress cities of Sigmar are islands of light in a sea of darkness. Constantly besieged, their walls are assailed by maniacal hordes and monstrous beasts. The bones of good men are littered thick outside the gates. These bulwarks of order are embattled within as well as without, for the lure of chaos beguiles the citizens with promises of power. Still, the champions of order fight on. At the break of dawn, the crusader's bell rings, and new expedition departs. Storm-forged knights march shoulder to shoulder with resolute militia. Stoic Dwarden and slender elves. Bedecked in the splendor of war, the Dawnbringer Crusades venture out to find civilizations anew. These grim pioneers take with them the fires of hope yet they go forth into a hellish wasteland. Out in the wilds, hardy colonists restore order to a crumbling world. Haunted eyes scan the horizon for tyrannical reavers as they build upon the bones of ancient empires, eking out a meager existence from cursed soil and ice-cold seas. By their valor, the fate of the mortal realms will be decided. The ravening terrors that prey upon these settlers take a thousand forms. Cannibal barbarians and deranged murderers crawl from hidden lairs. Martial hosts clad in black steel march from skull-strewn castles. The savage hordes of destruction batter the frontier towns until no stone stands atop another. In the dead of night come howling throngs of the undead, hungry to feast upon the living. Against such foes, courage is the truest defense and the most effective weapon. It is something that Sigmar's chosen do not lack, but they are not always strong enough to prevail, and even in victory, each new battle saps their soul a little more. This is the time of turmoil. This is the era of war. This is the age of Sigmar.
The Age of Myth The time known to mortals as the Age of Myth is one of epic tales and folklore. It is recorded not so much by the written word as by the oral tradition of the scald, the seer, and the village elder. This is a time when gods and monsters clashed over a formative cosmos. The seeds of the first civilization were sown, and the scourge of chaos was but a shadow in the minds of a scant few. Of his arrival in the mortal realms, Lord Sigmar will not speak. Even to allude to the destruction of the world that was is to risk his thunderous wrath. But the legends of High Azir have much to say on the subject nonetheless. Sigmar is often depicted hurtling across the cosmos, either taking the form of a twin-tailed comet or emblazoned upon one. The sages tell that this celestial body is malice, the core of the world of Sigmar's birth, and that it was this divine orb that bore him through the etheric void to the mortal realms. It still exists today, an ever-molten sphere of Sigmarite that forms the heart of Sigmar's celestial domain. From the remains of his former world, he has constructed wonders beyond counting. Legend has it that it was Dracotheon, first amongst the zodiacal god-beasts, that found Sigmar. Fascinated by the gleaming core of malice, the great Drake chased it across the firmament, an image that has been depicted a hundred times across the tapestries and friezes of Azirheim, and breathed life anew into the god-king's void-cold body. In return, Sigmar gave Dracotheon gifts of the raw metal Sigmarite, and in doing so began a lasting and profound friendship. The two were kindred spirits, as much as any soul can call a drake his equal. Dracotheon showed unto Sigmar the glory of the mortal realms, a set of realities crystallized in the void from the scattered remnants of broken worlds. Wrapped Sigmar ventured far across them. With the hammer of Gaul Moraz, the great shatterer, 
Sigmar overcame monstrous terrors, evil titans, and even lesser god-beasts that had claimed the mortal realms as their own, and sought to bar his path. But they could no more stop his wanderings than the sky can stop the meteor. It was Sigmar that overcame the Hydragors guarding the gates of Shyish, becoming the first living being to walk the underworlds. It was the God King's hammer that slew the world beast Oroxus and laid low Imnog, Gargant Lord and father of Behemoth. It was the lightning that crackled from his brow, which dispersed the killing mists of Olgu, and banished the Geist's Kamonic. Or so it is said, for the truth is lost to the passing eons. As he roamed, Sigmar took care to nurture life and cultivate civilization in the image of his mortal homelands wherever he went. Since those first formative years, Sigmar and Dracotheon have fought for the sanctity of order above all. They have a mutual enemy in the forces of disorder. Some say that the strange and mysterious Seraphon are the children of Dracotheon, just as the tribes of men are the scions of Sigmar, and that they have fought side by side against the worst foes in reality. At that time, there was no force in all the realms that could hold Sigmar back from his travels. He went where his whim took him, moved to the brink of tears by the natural splendor stretching across the realms. To hear the bards tell it, he sailed stormy oceans to lands whose soil had never borne a single footprint, bathed amongst living metal gins in lakes of shimmering mercury, rode great airborne islands from which healing waterfalls cascaded, and sang the songs of his former world to the spirits of the wood. Those nomads and tribespeople that eked a prehistoric existence from the realms formed of the same clay as the plants and animals that populated them, saw Sigmar as a god and followed him instinctively. They were hardy people to whom flint and tinder seemed advance, but they learned fast, ceasing their wanderings and learning to build, to fortify, and to drive back the horned beastmen of the wilds. 
in time, they became like unto the people of the God-King's youth, and his native tongue came to form the basis of the Azurite language, which transcended all nations and crossed all borders. So began a golden age, a time of progress and new culture that sages call the Age of Myth. Over the course of these glorious millennia, the lands were tilled and the beasts of the wilderness tamed or else avoided. Trade flourished between these new and burgeoning civilizations, and for a time all were as one. Yet Sigmar was at heart a warrior god, and firmly believed only the strong should survive in this new paradigm. He taught his people the ways of battle, and put the fire of conquest in their breasts, encouraging them to expand their domains and cross from one realm to another via the portals known as realm gates. Perhaps, given the nature of men, the tribes would have warred amongst themselves eventually. Whatever the truth, the people of the realms learned the lessons of the blade as well as the plowshare. In time, it was to cost them dearly. A Pantheon of Order Sigmar Heldenhammer was not the only deity to have manifested in the mortal realms. Those beings who had ascended to godhood during the demise of the world that was had awoken far removed from one another. But as Sigmar traveled the realms, he united them in a pantheon, for a time at least. The old stories tell it was the god-king who uncovered the whereabouts of his fellows. These were those gods who had mortal origins in the world before time, yet who had achieved apotheosis and now stood as Sigmar's peers. Some of these new gods were known to him as trusted friends. Others he had once known as deadly foes, yet here they could prove valuable allies. The first to join Sigmar's cause were the Dwarden ancestor gods, Grungni and Grimnir, the first called the Great Maker, the second the Berserker God. Sigmar found them chained atop a high mountain, bound in fetters forged by Grimnir himself. 
though as to why they were so chained, the gods would not speak. Sigmar broke their bonds with his hammer, in doing so earning their gratitude. Grungni became a firm ally of Sigmar from that point onwards, aiding him in the forging of civilization itself. Grimnir, however, could not stand to be an honor debt to anyone. He demanded Sigmar choose a task worthy of his matchless ferocity. When the god-king chose the slaying of the god-beast Volcatrix, mother of salamanders, Grimnir sought out and attacked the titanic beast without pause. Grimnir sustained terrible wounds as he was raked by Volcatrix's claws, but he landed the final blow nonetheless. In her death throes, Volcatrix tore Grimnir apart, and the two were scattered as meteors of gold and ash. The great parch in Akashi is said to be scarred by the craters of their descending remains. The green-skinned god, Gorka Morka, was found consumed, his famous strength useless against the globular amber mass of Drakatoa, the living avalanche. The green-skin god, Gorka Morka, was found consumed, his famous strength useless against the globular amber mass of Drakatoa, the living avalanche. Sigmar freed him, but instead of showing gratitude, the two-headed auric deity attacked in a blind rage. Only after twelve days and nights of earth-shattering brawling did the two come to mutual respect. For a time, Gorka Morka slew monsters at Sigmar's behest, clearing a path for civilization. The elf gods of Alariel, Teclis, Tyrion, and Malirion were met by the god-king one after another, and convinced of his plan. Under a mountainous cairn in Shaiish, the god-king found Nagash. There was a time when he would have slain the great necromancer on sight. But here, in this new world, Sigmar saw value in finding common cause. Grudgingly, they worked together to build the first cities, for they both desired to see civilization take root, even if for very different reasons. That alliance was tenuous indeed, and when it inevitably fell apart, the fallout would be dire in the extreme. The gift 
of civilization. The times known to men as the age of myth were days of unlimited horizons and potential. The realms were replete with resources both magical and mundane, and proved fertile ground for the founding of new cities. Sigmar's vision was made a reality in a hundred nations and more, and, for a time, life was good. Protected by the new gods as they were, and tutored in the ways of culture and progress, the fledgling nations under Sigmar's rule flourished. A golden chain of civilization linked to one another across the realms. The bones of these same once glorious metropolises litter the wilderness, for their enduring power was not as immortal as their architects had dared to hope. Those born into this golden age knew paradise. The god-king's might was beyond question, and the benefits of his patronage rose tall for all to see. With human, dwarden, and elf masons working in concert, their workforces bolstered by tireless legions of skeletons supplied by Nagash. The cities grew fast and high. In fair Elixia, in Cayman, the streets rang to the hammers of a thousand gifted artisans. On the balconies of Theria's arboretums in Giran, the enchanted flowers of Alariel's magic bloomed in every archway, bestowing life on all who drank in their scent. Even Nagashizar in Shyish was considered a place of order and progress, a city where anarchy and warfare were distant memories. Few knew it at the time, but that vast citadel of the dead was not alone in having extensive catacombs beneath it, filled with the inert forms of what would one day prove to be the cornerstones of Nagash's new order. In that halcyon era, trade and prosperity was considered a birthright. Wondrous palaces and arcane technologies were created by the finest minds of the age. And as ancient rivalries were put aside, civilization as a whole felt the benefit. The epic sagas maintain that travelers visited the great wonders of the realm one after another and with a network of realm-spanning portals linking each swath of civilizations, perhaps those strange tales hold a measure of truth. The Spear of Malice, the Bone Pillars of Anthgor, 
the peak of Deific Mons, and the sky bridges of Gur. All of these legendary landmarks, and more, are glorified in song and verse. Though many have since been cast down or consumed by the ravages of time. It is a tragic irony that the remains of these wondrous marvels of architecture now form little more than opportunistic shelter for the embittered descendants of those who raised them to the skies. The Powers of Chaos The four dark gods of chaos have always sought to corrupt and despoil reality. Forever in tension as they seek to pass one another in the great game, their power ebbs and flows. And, of late, a fifth god has joined their number. As long as emotions rage within the hearts of mortals, they can never truly be defeated. Corn, the Blood God Corn is made stronger by every conflict, for he is rage incarnate. And with the recent eruption of barbarism in Gur, his potency increases once more. He is a perpetually wrathful, roaring being of infinite strength and supreme battle prowess. In scrimshawed bone and blasphemous woodcuts, he is depicted as a hound-headed colossus clad in brass armor whose throne is mounted upon a mountain of skulls. Those same decapitated heads that are offered up to him as tribute by his innumerable followers. It is said corn rewards bravery, physical might, and conquest, and punishes cowardice seeing spell-casting as the refuge of the weak. His gore-drunk faithful range far and wide as they go about their dire butchery. If no victims can be found, they will fall upon one another or even wound themselves unto death. Regardless of the source, the blood god hungrily watches the carnage rot in his name. The spilt gore of a former friend is as readily accepted as that of an enemy. Corn cares not from whence the blood flows, only that it flows. Zinch, the changer of the ways. Endless are the schemes of Zinch overlapping and tangling amongst one another with fractal complexity. He is the architect of fate, as the god of sorcery, hope, and deceit. He has an unrivaled comprehension of magic, but also destiny 
intrigue, ambition, and subterfuge. Being the master of all change, he has a strong claim to ultimate power. For without transformation, a warrior cannot ascend to greatness. The gods cannot bestow their gifts, and the living cannot die. Perhaps Zinch would pull the strings of even his brother gods, were it not for the fact that he is quite mad. Not even he can see past, present, and future all at once, nor fathom the myriad consequences of his infinite schemes. Neither does he care that one may confound the other, for it is the act of manipulation that is the goal in and of itself. To try to comprehend the madness is to feel one's own sanity slipping away. The blessings he gives to those who earn his favor usually take the form of mutation or transformation, accepted with dark glee by his true disciples, no matter how hideous or disturbing a form they may take. Nurgle the Plague Father Nurgle sees himself as a generous god, a belly-laughing patriarch who ladles his carefully brewed concoctions across an ungrateful cosmos. In fact, the dubious gifts that Nurgle lavishes upon reality are only seen as blessings by the insane. Grandfather Nurgle is named by some as a god of dark vitality, but he brings only disease and despair, inflicting pandemics of supernatural malady that turn their victims into the most repugnant forms. Many turn to him purely to escape the pain and purgatory of their infection or to save those they love from a similar fate. And escape it they do, for with Nurgle's chuckling indulgence, the afflicted no longer feel the agony of their infections, but come to revel in them, even as they triple in severity. Nurgle delights in decay and physical corruption. Though the eternal cycle of putrefaction, rebirth, and morbidity draws him the way a corpse draws flies, he cares most of all for the sickening inevitability of entropy. During times of rampant contagion, Nurgle's power waxes strongest to the dismay of all. Slanesh, the Dark Prince Slanesh is the patron of excess in all things, master of luxury, indulgence, and creative power. His realms of influence include music, art, and desire, 
but also sadism, perversion, and cruelty. His lilting laughter can be heard on the cusp of the senses, wherever discipline bows to temptation and virtue falls to vice. Slanesh's allure is highly addictive, and those who follow him are soon consumed by pride, arrogance, gluttony, or a hundred other kinds of excess. For all his power over the secret heart, he is reckoned the least of the chaos deities, for the god himself is lost. The throne at the heart of his palace of impossible debauchery lies empty, and his minions wring their hands in anguish, or else scour the lands for the slightest trace of his intoxicating scent. To underestimate his power is a fatal mistake even then. Despite being trapped within the hidden gloaming by the artifice of the elven gods, he works his schemes through dreams and whispers, slowly breaking the chains of paradox that bind him as he prepares for a devastating return to power that will drown the mortal realms in a tide of dark passion. A Dark God Enchained The gods of chaos are primordial and cosmic, the coalescence of emotions and concepts so powerful they have existed for as long as sentience itself. To them, the new gods were upstarts, little more than pieces in the great game the ruinous power had played for eons. Yet even they were not invulnerable, as Slanesh, the Dark Prince, found to his cost. The nemesis of the elves is known as Slanesh the Dark Prince of Excess. Slanesh feeds on obsession above all. Given the elven propensity to feel emotion more keenly than humanity could ever dream of, the Dark Prince has always prized the souls of elves highly. During the end times of the world that was, the Dark Prince gorged himself on the souls of the elven race, consuming almost all of their number in a cataclysm of gluttony and greed. For a time, he was as sated as a god of excess can be, a swollen and triumphant presence in the void. The elven lords Tyrion and Teclis were amongst the few of their kind to have escaped Slanesh's apocalyptic feast. Tyrion was first to awaken, not just as an incarnation of the energies of Hish, 
but as a god of light. He ventured far into wonderment, pressing further and further towards the realm's edge, where the Hishian magic was so searingly intense it stole his sight. Were it not for his connection with his twin brother Teclis, he would be entirely blind. Together, the two roamed Hish, but of their former elven kin, they found no sign. In shadowy Olgu, their counterparts, Malirian and Morathi, had found themselves similarly reborn. Malirion had achieved godhood, though his mother Morathi lingered on the threshold of apotheosis. They too searched for elves to no avail. It was during the early years of the Age of Myth that the God King found the elven gods, a great relief swelling in his heart at each reunion. Even the duplicitous Malirion agreed to join his pantheon. Each of the gods gave unto Sigmar a kingly gift that furthered his grand designs. Yet the elves had an agenda of their own. Sigmar had revealed to them the presence of elves on Azir, yet the vast majority of their kin still languished within Slanesha's gullet. It was the discovery of a sub-realm between those of light and shadow that proved the turning point of elven history. Though the gods of light could not stray into the realms of shadow, and vice versa, they could coexist in the twilight space between the two. Ulgish, the hidden gloaming. There, they began a great sorceress work of creation, fashioning a prison of paradox that was both light and shadow. By essentially using themselves as bait, for Slanesh could not resist a banquet of godly souls, they lured their nemesis into Ulgish. Bloated as he was, the Dark God was unable to escape the fetters they wound around him. It was hailed as a great victory. Using the pinnacle of their magic, the elf gods drew out their captive souls of the long dead of their kin, and over time learned how to remake them as mortal elves. Yet in doing so, they turned their backs on Sigmar's pantheon at a critical time. The Age of Chaos Far beyond the void, the dark gods looked upon the civilizations of Sigmar's new order with covetous eyes. Soon, their whispers were heard in every realm. 
half-imagined but powerful nonetheless. When the escalation of civil war, arcane rivalry, and blasphemous ritual led to reality itself splitting open, the poison of chaos spilled through. The dark gods have invaded many worlds across creation, for they are beings from the realm of chaos, a non-place of raw magic that bleeds into a hundred realities and more. When they beheld the mortal realms, they desired nothing more than to conquer the cosmos entire, subsuming it into their own hellish dimension, and in doing so, eradicating it from reality entirely. Were it not for Sigmar, they would have likely already achieved it. The flaws of mankind are manifold, and the Duarden and Elves are proud races both. It was through the foibles of such mortal souls that the Dark Gods pushed their influence into the mortal realms. They did so at first with subconscious urges, gently nudging those given to dark thoughts towards acts of conflict, hubris, and battle lust. The ambitions of the first human civilizations proved fertile ground for the seeds of destruction they were planted. They were a source of endless energy and infinite entertainment, an arena in which their great game could be fought anew. Treasonous schemers seeking to overthrow their rulers worked complex ploys against their betters, their prayers for change unconsciously calling to the architect of fate and Zinch was only too pleased to answer them. Those who had been laid low by disease, or were made to endure the sight of their loved ones suffering similarly, sent their pleas for a cure into the void, where Grandfather Nurgle smiled in beneficence before responding with the worst possible kind of blessing. Where the nobles and aristocrats of Shadrach and Olgu grew bored with their orgiastic pursuits, Slanesh was there to spur them on to ever darker depths of obsession. When the iniquities of civilization sent the short-tempered and the maniacal into a rage, corn stoked the fires turning outbursts into bloody rampages that began ever-escalating cycles of slaughter. Even the great-horned rat turned the desperate to his cause. His infestations of vermin were so numerous 
they often broke the minds of those who had once fought to repel them, yet now fostered them instead. The primary lure of chaos has always been that of a shortcut to power. The dark gods will readily promise immortality in visions and dreams, though they are not so keen to divulge the fact that it is an eternity spent as a servant rather than a master. As Sigmar's civilization saw these spires of progress rise high, those possessed of boundless ambition used the power lent to them by chaos to gain an edge. Consolidating their grip, they turned to ever darker means to ensure their supremacy. Cities and fortresses that were once beacons of hope turning to towering icons of oppression. There was no need for the dark gods to send their eternal champions into the fray, for new playthings presented themselves with every passing year. Only when ritualized violence, erupting civil war, and nation-spanning invasion culminated in the most spectacular and inhuman of deeds, did the true foot soldiers of chaos come to join the carnage. In a hundred locations across the realms, reality screamed as the veil between worlds thinned, stretched, and tore completely. Through the resultant rifts poured the demons of chaos. The doom of the mortal realms had come. The Doom Insidious The cataclysm brought to the mortal realms unfolded in a thousand different ways. No two damnations were alike for the entire panoply of human life had spread across the realms, adapting to the sites they settled and making them their own. But the dominion of Sigmar was not to last. Each of the ancient primordial deities of chaos found certain realms more desirable than others. They had their own proclivities and favored breeds of disaster, and they intended to see them flourish in fertile soil. With many of the lands unaware of the chaos threat, their works grew ever greater. Over time, in every realm, the first falling droplets of poison with which they soured the dreams of men were followed by the storm of a full-scale apocalypse. Akshi, being so volatile, was known for the warlike nature of its tribes and nations. Its doom 
came amongst blades in flame. The realm of fire's people had found ways to fight one another in ritual fashion. Using challenges and duels between factions to avoid the costly after effects of a slaughter. Yet one can no more quell the passions of the actions that extinguish the fires of its many volcanoes. When the contest of champions held at the Clavis Isles saw Threx Skullbrand and Corgos Cool drive a series of honor duels into an ongoing massacre. The carnage was so great that by the climax of the gathering, the combatants waded through rivers of blood. When the days of gore reached their peak, the fabric of the realm was thinned to the point it frayed and split. From the realm of chaos, that hideous dimension beyond reality, the demons of corn howled in triumph. From the pulsing red wound in the heart of that archipelago, the demons of corn crossed blood-reddened seas to invade the great parch. At first in scattered warbands, but then as a demonic horde that swept all before it. The armies of that time had never seen a foe nearly so deadly. Indeed, only Sigmar himself knew the true import of that breach. It was the first demonic incursion wherein the legions of the hellish realm of chaos poured forth to wreak havoc upon the worlds of men. It was by no means the last. Great was the woe visited upon the ever-spring swath of Giran, the stretch of the realm of life most sacred to the ever-queen Alariel in the Age of Myth. The swath's continents had been true paradises, lush and verdant, where the plants and the animals lived in noble harmony, and humanity took only what they needed from the lands. At the dawn of the Age of Chaos, the tiniest of organisms infected Giran's wild glory, and invisible yet potent diseases spread with surging, escalating fecundity from one nation to another. Viruses became parasites, became blighted carriers who were more plague than person. Lurching from one settlement to another, to spread despair and hopelessness. In doing so, they prepared the way for a demonic onslaught of terrifying scale. 
for being supernatural in nature. No mortal hospice or alchemist could cure the sickness before the realm of life was ripe for conquest. The bane of the savage lands of Gur was not a subtle one. Being a place of constant predations roamed by long-toothed monsters, the realm of beasts was primal and fierce, and it called to corn with every act of bloody murder and flesh-ripping slaughter that occurred under its endless blue skies. There, the greenskin tribes were predominant. They whose culture took any excuse for violence they could find. It took nothing more than the rumor of battle to tip the land into an orgy of bloodletting. Yet, soon enough, their dreams haunted by the brazen roar of corn, the humans of that land fell to the lure of conflict for conflict's sake. Where once the people of that land killed to eat or to prove dominance, soon enough they killed purely for the brutal joy of it. Cayman, the realm of metal, had been made a utopia of progress and wealth through the ingenuity of the Duarden and their human allies. Much of the Spiral Crux, a land of golden splendor famed across every realm, was fashioned by the Great Maker himself. Before the inevitability of change, however, all is rendered impermanent. And even Grungni's works could not last against the concentrated magics of Zinch. It is said that in Olgu, the Shadow Realm, the forces of chaos found little purchase at first. To invade the land of mists and gloom is to become hopelessly lost and likely disappear without trace. Given that the demon finds itself dwindling when not sustained by the dark energies that spawned it, and that the cunning Malarion turned aside his foes with every iota of his artful cunning, the lands of Olgu bore far less of the brunt of chaos invasion than the other realms. Of all the agents of chaos, only the Skaven thrived here. Verminous and sly enough to infest the cracks in Olgu's reality. They made their nests even in the Shadrach Convergence, where Malarion's and Morathi's domains all but cross upon one another, in doing so ushering in the time of strife known to the elves as the Cathrar Duel. Deathly Shyish felt the claw of chaos upon it, for the order and stolidity which bound native specter and mortal alike, was an offense to the dark gods. 
Nagash had taken great pains to usurp every afterlife he could across the length and breadth of the amethyst realm, where every heaven and every hell imagined by mortal minds became real through the crystallization of belief and reality on the realm's edge. Nagash's intent was to become the lone deity of that realm, where once a thousand gods of the dead held sway. It was the incursions of Nurgle that broke upon those deathly shores first. Plague, strife, and the blossoming of a thousand kinds of disease remade the underworlds as places of unruly despair and a desperate battle, rather than seeing them bound together under the rigid, shackling laws of the great necromancer. Even Azir, the stronghold that the god-king Sigmar had taken for himself, was scarred by the corruptions of chaos. As the other realms fell to the ruinous powers, rains of chaos-infused meteors and baleful warpstone descended from the skies. Those proud celestial beasts that roamed the wilderness and drank from tainted water soon began to change in nature as well as form. Though Sigmar and his people avoided those zones as best they could, many high-peaked mountains and pure crystal lakes were irrevocably polluted by the foulness that had been spat from the realm of chaos, and were quarantined until a way to strike back could be found. Tragically, it did not come soon enough. Everywhere, the talons of chaos dug harder and deeper into reality. In every land, across every generation, those who had grown strong under the rule of Sigmar's pantheon found themselves cast into the dirt to grovel under the iron heel of their oppressors. As easy as it was to see the terrors inflicted upon the people as the act of a malevolent outside force, the truly wise knew that was not the case at all. Here was the darkness in the hearts of every man and woman made manifest, the nightmares within given form. For the chaos gods are formed of the hopes, lusts, fears, and urges of mortal souls. Those who not only turned from their own kind, but who sold themselves to eldritch forces so they might gain instead of suffer from the onslaught that befell them. The Humbling of the God-King Sigmar's power was such that with every blow of his world-shattering hammer, he massacred the scions of chaos, 
and sent demon kings howling back to the void. Though he won many a battle, he was slowly losing the war. At the Battle of Burning Skies, his true plight became horribly clear. As hundreds of nations turned to chaos in order to survive, Sigmar's wrath grew ever more thunderous. His ascension to godhood had not eased his temper. If anything, the destruction of his former world had seen him in its thrall. He fought with passion and anger, more than with detachment and strategic acumen. Every bit the war god on the battlefield and in the celestial courts alike. Yet, even as he secured victory in one theater of war, a dozen more fell to the ever-growing numbers of his enemies. Sigmar's alliance of gods had already shown the first cracks in its foundations. The time was drawing near for the unfolding, multi-realm disaster to reach its darkest hour. The earliest Axian tomes of war, their metal leaves etched in vitriol, detail Sigmar's duels against the tetrarchs of ruin. Bathed in the flames of Akshi, Sigmar is said to have cast down Angarath, the Exalted One, and destroyed his coronate armies. He followed the vile, meters-wide slime trail of the great unclean one, Feculox, to the city of Branches in Giran before smiting him to ruin. The Lord of Change, Kyanthanus, avoided a direct conflict instead binding Sigmar in a loop of deception. Yet through the steel of his warrior soul, Sigmar broke the spell. Even Luxius, the Keeper's artful seductions, withered under the force of Sigmar's contempt. It was Archaon, the Ever-Chosen, who proved Sigmar's truest bane. He saw in these defeats an opportunity. Though it took long decades to achieve, he united the demon lords in a common cause, thereby adding the hosts of the realm of chaos to his armies. At the battle of burning skies upon Akshi's fire plains, the Tetrarchs met Sigmar in battle once more, and the size of their demonic hordes blackened the earth. Against them stood Sigmar and the twelve tribes of Bellicose, fire-heartened nations who had resolved to destroy their chaos oppressors or die in the attempt. With them, were oath-bound Dwarden, elves in glittering armor, 
battle-hungry oryks, and even ranks of living dead. Though Nagash himself was not present, many of his necromantic armies stood by Sigmar's side. Gorka Morka raged unstoppably, clubbing great chasms into the oncoming hordes. The burning light of Teclis banished foes innumerable. Yet, it was always mighty Sigmar who took the greatest toll. On raged the conflict as gods, monsters, and mortal warriors fought with everything they had. Dusk led to dawn, and to dusk again. The pyres of skulls raised to the glory of the dark gods were as mountains. So relentless was the slaughter, it is said that for a year afterwards, to look upon Akshi from another realm was to see only a burning death's head in the sky. Seven times Sigmar led the charge, and seven times his coalition threw back their chaos foes, reaping a great tally with each clash. One after the other, the Tetrarchs tasted Galmaraz's wrath, for in their monstrous pride they still would not fight as one. But there remained one still to challenge the God King. As Archaon rode to oppose Sigmar, the circles of his Varanguard at his side, the God King hurled the hammer Galmaraz with the force of a thunderbolt. It was an error of judgment that was to ripple through the centuries. An illusion conjured by Archaon tricked Sigmar into hurling his hammer, not at his nemesis, but into the rent in reality from which the demon hordes had poured into Akshi. The skies cracked and boomed as the hammer plowed into the void, lost to Sigmar's hand, and with it, the day was lost also. Bereft, Sigmar was much diminished. He fought on as long as he could, even bringing his war to the all points, but his armies were slowly decimated. Sigmar, seeing no other option, retreated with his people to the realm of heavens, and sealed the gates of Azir behind him. In doing so, he consigned the other mortal realms to damnation. On that day, the golden legends of the Age of Myth gave way to a bloody historicity at the point of a jagged blade. The Dying of the Light The critical loss at the Battle of Burning Skies saw the struggling war effort against chaos fall into total disarray. 
with Sigmar's people making their exodus to Azir, and his pantheon looking to defend their own territories above all else, disaster loomed. Whilst in Hish, another kind of cataclysm was gradually unfolding. Hish, the realm of light, was once the brightest jewel in the string of realm spheres that formed the cosmos. In every one of the ten paradises, enlightenment was easy to achieve, for the realm was made of the stuff of illumination in all senses of the word. Tragically, as became evident at the dawn of the Age of Chaos, even its scintillating grandeur was not immune to the scourge of the Dark Gods. Though its people were highly intelligent, mastering sciences both mundane and magical, in their ambition and hidden desire for supremacy, there were the seeds of their own downfall. The elves of Hish were not the first to have been rescued from Slanesh's glutted form by Teclas and his twin Tyrion. That dubious honor belongs to the Ideneth, an elven word meaning extreme seclusion. Or rather, their forefathers, the Sathai. The Sathai were the result of a grand magical experiment that saw their essences extracted from Slanesh's roiling gullet. Using a masterpiece of soul magic, the elven gods used arcane barbs that not only identified the swallowed souls of their former kin, but helped them coalesce and be drawn outward as a parasitic worm is wound from a host. When their pale, writhing essence was given form, it was that of an elf. And though Tyrion and Teclis took care to make these refugees appear as fair as possible, inside they still harbored a grim curse. Teclis found that the Sathai could fly into frenzies of excess emotion and drew the only conclusion. They still bore the taint of their imprisonment. Worse still, the vast majority of their offspring were born with swiftly withering souls. Empty creatures, eyeless and cold, they could only survive if bolstered by living animus stolen from others. Teclis was horrified at this development, and were it not for his brother preaching mercy, he would have woven a great spell to destroy them all. Yet his hand was spared. The Sathai, terrified and abhorred by the news that their creator sought to destroy them, fled to the deepest, darkest parts 
of the mortal realms, so that neither their bane, Slanesh, nor their savior, Teclis, could find them. So the Idaneth were born, their enclaves founded in the depths of the watery abyss. Through the magic of the elf gods, many more iterations of the elven race were created. But amongst them were the majestic but terrible creations of Malarion and the daughters of Morathi. Most successful, at least by the measures of the Haitian aesthetic, were the Lumineth, they who would one day claim the title Realm Lords. Whether they truly deserve it is a subject of much debate, for the elves of history have ever been riven by division and hubris. The Lumineth were introduced to Hish and, under their godly mentor's teachings, founded ever more impressive citadels of learning. Teclis dared to hope that he had fashioned a race of elves that would fulfill his dream of recreating the glory of his mortal homeland, Othuan. Ish was replete with the potential for learning and mastery of all subjects, be they terrestrial or otherworldly. The Hishian elves devoured every shred of knowledge they could find with a ravenous appetite. And, not only through diligent study and exploration, through the usage of the crystalline substance known as aether quartz, they entrapped the magic of the realm into portable form. Wearing jewelry made of the arcane crystal against their own skin, so the intense energy could seep into them and power their leaps of logic and philosophy. One so enhanced became quicker of mind, nimbler of body, and more ambitious of spirit. Further and further up the Teclian ladder they climbed, that symbolic path to enlightenment that led ever closer to the realm's purest state. Their towers grew taller and taller, each mage or noble striving to outdo the others. Over time, they took an ignoble thrill in having their work surpass those of their peers. They began to create ever more elaborate spells, rites, and masterpieces of the magical arts, some of which would have been incredibly destructive were they ever to be unleashed. Purely to show that they could. The elves of Hish told themselves that would never happen, of course. The spells were intended to bring about an end to war rather than facilitate it, for the realm itself could not survive 
if they were cast, and no sane mind would inflict that fate upon beloved Hish. It was little more than a thought experiment, the scholars said. The Lumineth were the masters of their own domain, and had long since expunged any real threat. What they did not admit to themselves, of course, is that the deadliest threat of all nestled within. It was a matter of centuries before the hidden toll of their pride became clear. Over that time, the subtle echoes of the dark gods found their ways into dreams, imaginings, and works of art. The spark that would light the inferno came in the form of spiteful rumors that the finest artists owed their skills to a demon patron, a falsehood, and yet an echo of what was come to pass. Sly insinuations became angry accusations, and then raging diatribes. Subtle hexes of misfortune became voice-stealing curses, then pyrotechnic displays of magical retribution. In every great nation, the boiling point was met. Eldritch tomes that held terrible spells were taken from long-locked libraries, and civil war began in earnest. The time known as the Okari Dara began, known to men as the Spirefall. The Lumineth race was decimated, and Hish itself paid a terrible price. The land was ripped apart in a hundred places, rent by invisible claws that snatched up rival mages and crushed them in midair. The seas boiled, the skies screamed, and thousands of innocents died as the spire cities that had once gleamed so bright fell into dust. In the most badly affected places, great wounds were torn in the heart of magical craters that led to another dimension. And through those lesions came the worst of all the elven race's foes, the demons of Slanesh. Dominion of Chaos Across the wondrous landscapes of the mortal realms, the great game of the Dark Gods was fought anew. Each surrender, each traitorous deed, each act of bloody abandon was another step towards the demise of the old order. So began a new epic. The five long centuries of strife known to men as the Age of Chaos. Without Sigmar to hold together the alliance of men and gods, the resistance to the chaos incursions began to crumble. 
A new phase of the great game began as the chaos powers played with the fates of the mortal kingdoms. And with the god king having withdrawn to Azir, they excelled at it, making pawns of emperors, warrior kings, and high priests as they worked to change the nature of reality itself. To the horror of all who lived to witness it, the lands began to change along with their people. They twisted into terrifying new vistas, especially at the realm's edge, where magic saturated the earth and sky, and in places disintegrated entirely into primordial chaos. Many of Akshi's native tribes and civilizations fought hard, for a time at least. Many more did not, seeking survival by turning to the worship of the dark powers that had so swiftly ripped away the comforts of their former lives. Proud warrior tribes turned to nomadic reavers and then as the worship of the blood god ate away at their sanity, became murderous butchers, killing and eating those who would not share in their cannibalistic feasts. In many of those nations, hunted to barrenness by the crimson hosts of the blood god, the rivers that had once irrigated the lands ran red with gore fast flowing at the center but clotted and stinking near the banks. Water became scarce, prized above even gold, and the folk of the lands found themselves dying of thirst or lashing out in wild, despairing frenzies to add to their own murderous works to the blood god's tally. It was not only Korn who staked his claim to the nations of Akshi. In scholarly Asperia, the Magocracy of the Great Parch found itself beset by the arcane demons of Zinch. Whilst in northern Kotha, the harrowing red flux of Nurgle burned millions of people from the inside out. A hundred dooms befell each mortal realm. For the gods of chaos delight in fashioning the fall of empires old and new. In once fair Giran, the land itself became sick under the influence of Nurgle. The verdant jungles rotted and the burgeoning fields became sucking quagmires. The realm's Sylvaneth defenders were forced into seclusion, waging a guerrilla war that could never be sustained for long against the rising tide of plague. With Alariel fighting a losing battle and hence sinking into a long despondency, Giran's heart was all but claimed by Nurgle's foul greed. 
Gur's fall began with skirmishes and hunting parties that killed for the sake of killing, but ended in a realm-wide war between man, beast, and greenskin. When the gore flowed so thick that one could no longer tell friend from foe, the true scions of the brazen god became manifest. The savage tribes found themselves fighting not only horned creatures of flesh and blood, fierce but at least obeying the brutal logic of tooth and claw, but hideous otherworldly demons that sent the land spiraling ever further down into an abyss of dark and senseless slaughter. The fight for survival that had typified the realms of beasts became more desperate and bleak than ever before, as the land itself, awoken by so much spilt blood, brought its deadly hunger to bear. In glittering Cayman, the Golden Realm, the twisting magic of Zinch wreaked unbound ruin. Even the god-wrought isles were to be crushed, to crumple like tin before the unreason and magical violence of the great conspirator, whose manipulations had forced the people of the spiral crux to wield magics far beyond their ability to control. In doing so, they let the roiling essence of chaos into Cayman's heart, reshaping their realm forever. Now, the change god has more claim over the alchemical reaches of the realm of metal than the Doradin gods ever did. Olgu fared better for a time for only the great-horned rat thrived as a rival to the elven gods that had made their claim there. Yet, even the least of the dark powers had influence enough to erode reality. Those lands claimed by the Skaven became dusty wastelands, where the ash of fallen empires was carried on the breeze, in places not even a blade of grass could be found that had not been gnawed by chisel-toothed vermin. Worse still, as the Age of Chaos reached its peak, the Thirteen Dominions were prowled in ever greater numbers by the God-seeking warbands of Slanesh. Olgu's opposite number, Hish, was likewise afflicted by the scions of the Dark Prince, though it suffered from within rather than without. The end result was the same, the breaching of the walls of reality by the ravening, sordid demons of Slanesh. In Shyish, Nurgle's plague fleets launched coastal invasions in hundreds of underworlds, 
though the living and the dead united to fight against them, they could not hold back the ravening plagues that consumed spectral matter as easily as it did living flesh. The plague fathers, brothers in darkness, took their own annexes in those underworlds that pleased them. To the heroic specters of Halost, corn brought war anew. Whilst in the pleasure gardens of Bacchanalia, the forces of Slanesh rampaged at will. At the climax of Shyish's war, the immortal warlord Archaon, an old rival of Nagash's from the world before time, laid the great necromancer low, and in doing so, struck a blow to his carefully constructed empire from which it has never recovered. Azir's celestial cities were preyed upon by monsters that roamed from the mountains to feast upon the soft flesh of men. Each once a noble beast twisted beyond recognition by the poisoned lakes and tentacle-choked craters of the highlands. Over the course of a long and violent century, the plague of monsters was hunted to extinction. But wickedness had been sown within the cities of men as well as in the wild. With the god-king's blazing eye upon their works, those men who had taken the seeds of darkness into their souls were blasted to nothingness by Sigmar's righteous wrath. Even in this singular victory, Sigmar had suffered a terrible loss. Though the Heldenhammer preached to his people that through valor and strength the works of chaos could still be driven back, he knew full well the dark gods neared their ultimate victory over the mortal realms. Over it all reigned the three-eyed king, he whose sadistic genius had brought about the death of worlds. The shadow of his Varangard agents fell upon almost every tyrant and dark king in the lands. His orchestration of the downfall of the mortal realms had come through uniting the faithful of the dark gods, so they fought as one instead of against one another, as they would otherwise have done. Though not even his most trusted lords knew it, he did so not to be rewarded by his patrons, but to usurp them. To all those who suffered under his rule, escaped to the hidden wilds, or somehow endured the shackles of his reign, there was but one immortal truth. Chaos had claimed a victory that could never be undone.